Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hard to believe, but the presidential election season officially kicks off today. There's a debate tonight for the Republican primary that includes an Ohio candidate. Eventually, we'll be talking about him. Not today. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. And Lisa's up first. Lisa, public records show an unusual method that Matt Dolan used to secure cash for his first run for the U.S. Senate in 2021. What is it? Yeah, Matt Dolan, uh, the uh, former state senator from Chagrin Falls, used a line of credit with Morgan Stanley, its Pepper Pike office, to fund his U.S. Senate run in 2021. So he got about 5 to $25 million in that line of credit at an interest rate of 0.832. That's compared to about 7% interest on a 30-year mortgage, 14.5% on credit cards, and 9.4% on a two-year personal loan. So he funded, that funded $8 million in personal contributions to his first campaign, and then he loaned the campaign $2.6 million from his own coffers. That's yet to be repaid. So for his current campaign for U.S. Senate. Uh, He has loaned himself $4 million. And in an August financial disclosure, he still lists that line of credit with Morgan Stanley, although they haven't decided whether to seek repayment on his personal loans. So Dolan, who's part of the the family that owns the Cleveland Guardians, his net worth is estimated to be between $14.5 and $41 million. But he owns millions in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds via Morgan Stanley. And usually, you know, in these kind of situations, you know, they probably offer low interest rate to their customers with high net worth and with a longstanding existing relationship. Obviously, he is the definition of low risk. If he were to default on the loans, there's plenty of assets and he's not going to default on the loans. And, And risk is a part of the lending process. But it does speak to the unfairness of the lending system in America that one of the wealthiest people in Cleveland can borrow money for less than 1% while the rest of us are stuck with much, much higher rates. He didn't do anything wrong. We should make that clear. He's taking advantage of what is available to him. And he, he's do it's also is in reading the, the excellent story by Jake Zuckerman. It's a way of avoiding taxes because if you start to liquidate assets, you might have to pay capital gains taxes, but if you right. borrow money on those assets, it's not, it's tax free, right? Well, and that's pretty much how a home equity line of credit works. So, you, you know, you can't fault him for taking advantage of things that are available to him as a wealthy man. Federal elections laws allow bank loans only if it's at the usual and customary interest rate for that type of loan. But this is a line of credit. So Open Secrets, a nonprofit tracking a group that tracks money in politics, they say of the 10 richest U.S. senators, only one disclosed using a bank loan, not a line of credit. This would be the Republican from Indiana, Mike Braun. He borrowed about 
$10.5 million in three loans from an Indiana bank, but his interest rate was about 425 to 5% interest. I, I don't know about the rest of you, but this was new information for me. I wasn't aware of this tax dodge where you borrow against your assets and then you don't have to pay taxes on it. I also, anytime I've read about a campaign getting a loan, I thought it was a regular loan. And this is very different from that. I think it will change the way we report on these things in the future. And we'll have to make clear the difference between a line of credit and a uh, and a regular bank loan. Great story. I, J- Jake Zuckerman I, just continues to nail great stories. Absolutely. And I was floored when I read this. I had no idea. I mean, I always knew that rich people lived off of their assets, right? And that the taxes weren't as great as, you know, having a job and having to pay income tax on it. But I had no idea that they were borrowing money to live off of all of the time. And then they live off the borrowed money so that their assets can just keep, you know, growing over and over and over again. And it, this was fascinating and new information to me. And the quote in the story that really stuck with you is like, it's good to be rich because it is. And you're right, Matt Dolan did nothing wrong. But this is, I mean, this is not how a system should work, that the bulk of taxes are being paid by the people who are putting their nose to the grindstone every day rather than the really wealthy people. Yeah, it's it creates a bigger and bigger wealth gap. But we talk about poverty all the time and mm-hmm. the people in poverty have no way they're going to get access to this kind of money at a low interest rate and it keeps them in poverty while the wealthy just keep building their assets. Good stuff. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com and you are listening to Today in Ohio. With less than three months to an Ohio vote on enshrining abortion rights in the state constitution, one of the state's leading anti-abortion groups is involved in some very public turmoil. Layla, what is this about? This this is Ohio Right to Life, and, and we're talking about an episode surrounding the departure of its, its uh, former communications director, Lizzie Marbach. She had served as the group's communications director since March of 2022. Reporter Andrew Tobias says the reason that she left boils down to what could be described as strategic differences before the November vote on abortion rights and Marbach's prolific use of social media. The group's leaders really took issue with her tone on Twitter in on a, in an August 10th post, she she called an abortion rights backer a murderous liar. Other recent posts included one from August 12th that described an iconic image of the Virgin Mary in a Mexican Catholic church as idolatry. The Catholic Church, of course, is one of the key allies in the effort to defeat the November uh, abortion rights amendment. And then she shared on August 10th a post that said people who support abortion rights shouldn't be allowed in the medical profession. She told Cleveland.com that that her bosses would have preferred her to use softer tones to object to abortion, that they d- didn't like her harshness. For a minute, it seemed that her firing was related to a public flap she had with Republican Representative Max Miller on Twitter. She had said, there's no hope for any of us outside of having faith in Jesus Christ alone. And Miller, who was Jewish, took issue with that and called her a bigot. The whole thing blew up on social media, but that that's actually not the reason Marbach was fired Right to Life says that they support her freedom of religious expression. So this really is about the harshness of her messaging on behalf of the organization. And this is really causing a lot of consternation among the various groups that are working to defeat the abortion amendment in November, because what Ohio Right to Life is reacting to here is the fact that nearly 60% of Ohioans actually support reproductive rights. 
So winning the hearts and minds of anyone who might be near the middle is going to require nuance and delicacy in the messaging. You cannot be as extreme as she has been in her social media feeds. Although this does reveal the debate that's going on in the anti-abortion circles. Some are arguing, like she does, that we should be very clear about this. This is about killing babies and we need to be strident. Some are finally becoming more pragmatic, realizing we're not in tune with America. We're losing every time we go into this battle. Let's water it down, which is not going to work either. Uh, There is the problem, though, when you're a spokesperson for an agency, you really can't go wild on your own because you're tied so inexorably to the agency you're speaking for, which is why I think they finally had to to cut with her. The Max Miller thing was interesting because he's basically pointing out that, hey, the idea of being anti-abortion is not just a Christian thing. There are others involved. And by saying what you're saying, you're cutting this out, which raises a great point. It turned into a, a nightmare for the congressman, even though he was making a salient point. Mm-hmm. I, I do find it interesting, though, and I've seen a couple of letters to the editor addressed actually to you, Chris, lately, about how we should really be talking about this as a reproductive freedom amendment, not just an abortion amendment. So I found that kind of interesting. And I try to say reproductive freedom whenever possible, because that's really at the root of it. That's what it's about. Yeah, I I wrote a column explaining we're not doing that in our style. We're calling it the abortion amendment. Um, And when I put that out on subtext before I did it, it was very, very mixed. And the letters to the editor have been still coming weeks later, still pretty mixed. We ran one yesterday by a woman that has two kids that said she had had two abortions. And let's be frank, let's make it about abortion. Um, You know, the the feeling in a newsroom is we got to lay it out that we wouldn't be having this debate if Roe v. Wade hadn't been thrown out. This is about abortion its heart, although it's about much more, and we keep explaining that in our stories. Just the, It's the third rail of third rails. It doesn't matter what we say or do. There's controversy involved. I do think it's fascinating that this organization is having this turmoil so close to this vote. They can't really afford to be fractured as they try to convince Ohio to vote this down, but they appear to be. Interesting story. Check it out on cleveland.com. The opposition is getting stronger against the ballot question to legalize recreational marijuana in Ohio. Who is the latest group to to make a difference, Laura? It's health commissioners. The Association of Ohio Health Commissions are joining Protect Ohio Workers and Families, and that's a coalition, as well as a coalition of children's hospitals, law enforcement, prosecutors, and veterans group. So basically they're saying that if you allow recreational marijuana in Ohio, Ohio is going to be less healthy, that it creates serious new risks for children's health, makes our workplaces and highways less safe, and that with our rates of opioid abuse and overdoses still among the highest in the country, we need to be helping Ohio find solutions to addiction, not facilitating it or the interest of an industry that profits from it. So this coalition It's pretty wide ranging, but none of them are big money groups. We're talking about the Children's Hospital Association, the Ohio Adolescent Health Association, Buckeye Sheriffs, 
Association of Chiefs and Police, prosecuting attorneys, veterans, court watch, and smart approaches to marijuana, which discourages marijuana use and legalization. So we don't really know what their plan is going to be. They don't have a whole lot of time here. I mean, early voting is going to start in October. Yeah, I, I just don't know what kind of impact it's going to have. And I do think there's a reefer madness feel to it. They're predicting just huge doom if people mm-hmm. do this. But alcohol is already legal. Everything they're saying about marijuana would apply to alcohol, but alcohol is legal. So, well, that's the whole point of the campaign. So it's I just don't know if it resonates. I, I get what they're saying. This mm-hmm. this will result in more kids eating some gummies. This will result in some people doing irresponsible things by being high and driving. But we're a country that largely is supposed to let people determine their fate. And it's very hard to parse alcohol and marijuana. I just... I'm not sure it's going to resonate. The other thing is, I, there was a great story last week that, that looked at alcohol trends in America. And the the younger you are, the less likely it is you're using alcohol. That, that, that That's just hmm. being looked at by each age group that gets younger as dangerous. It's bad for you. There have been plenty of studies in recent really? years that any amount of alcohol is bad for you. It, it, it's debunked all that stuff about the glass of red wine. And that age group is looking more and more toward the THC in marijuana, not smoking it. But I guess they're the younger ways. than me yeah, because but, I feel like all like the mommy whatever is all like, you know, wine o'clock somewhere. Yeah, but even in that and group, there's been a trend. And so I just think when people go to the polls, they're going to have a hard time justifying voting no when alcohol is completely legal. It, how, do you, how do you justify it? And, and I don't know that you, you know, people who are going to buy recreational marijuana are already smoking marijuana. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know that the market's going to grow that much. I mean, you can't, you have to be an adult to get into a dispensary anyway. So I don't see, and plus there's not been a whole lot of federal studies on marijuana because of its, mm-hmm. you know, it's on the controlled substances list. So we don't really know. That's a good point. I would love to see more studies. But, you know, I spent a week in Canada this month and it's legal, at least in Ontario. I couldn't tell you about the entire country, but I think so. And they have, you know, the highway signs just reminding people that you can't drive high, but they don't have nearly the billboards that Michigan does. Because when you drive through Michigan, I feel like every billboard on 75 is like how to get your weed immediately delivered, cheap, free, whatever it is. And I, I, I really don't want to see that in Ohio where like it's in your face all the time. But who knows? I, I, I think this gets back to the same element of issue one that is there a sense of fair play here. And to continue to harp on the reefer madness tenets of the dangers of marijuana when we have fully legal alcohol, it's just a hard argument to make. So we'll see. And I think you're right, Laura. They're not going to have much money. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A stunning study is out this week that has key information for anyone approaching or in retirement age, and it might be the key to avoiding Alzheimer's. Lisa, what is it? Yeah, this study comes from one of my former employers, actually, the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston. It'll be published in print in the Journal of Alzheimer Disease in September. They found that the typical routine vaccines that most people get offer protection against Alzheimer's disease. So they first looked at the annual flu shot. They found that people who over 65 who got their flu shot every year were 40% less likely to develop 
Alzheimer's. And then they said, well, let's look at other routine vaccines. And they did and found the same results. So the Tdap and TD uh, vaccine for tetanus, diphtheria, and whooping cough, 30% less likely to get Alzheimer's. The HZ herpes zoster for shingles, 25% reduced risk. And the pneumonia vaccine, a 27% re- percent reduced risk of Alzheimer's. So the lead author, Paul Schultz, says the results were a complete surprise, but they've suspected all along that immune cells involved in inflammation play a role in Alzheimer's disease development. So the vaccines actually have the same effect as three new antibody-based anti-myeloid drugs for Alzheimer treatment. And they say how the vaccines work is still unclear, but it may boost the effectiveness of the immune system reaction. This is fascinating news and a reminder that you should get your vaccines. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that there's some cumulative effect, which they didn't really describe because I got them all. It, it's what you said though about it. <laughs> The immune system, the idea that the immune system plays a role in Alzheimer's is fascinating because, you know, all, let's face it, what vaccines do is they ramp up your immune system to produce antibodies. That's why you can feel feverish or, after mm-hmm. you get them. But wow, this is huge news. And, and it gets back to the whole ridiculous anti-vaxxer movement. We, we have science that has given us precious, precious tools to avoid all sorts of diseases and now very likely Alzheimer's. And yet we have this movement of people that want to wear tinfoil on their heads and and say that it injects death into you. It's just the dumbest opposition you can you can get. I guess they just want to go back to using leeches to cure them. (laughs) (laughs) And it also shows, too, that inflammation is at the root of many medical conditions, including many types of cancer. So the more we learn about inflammation and the body's response to it, I think the more, you know, benefits we'll see. But this is great news. Yeah, when I I spotted this study and we determined to do a story, I sent it out to the people who subscribed to my text messages and there was huge interest in this. It was like major league wow factor. So it's a big deal. That's why we have it on the front page of the Plain Dealer. And we're talking about it on Today in Ohio. Layla, what happened to the Shaker Heights lawyer who supported Donald Trump and got caught voting twice? He was trying to rig the election. <laughs> yeah, this is the, the widespread voter fraud right here. Uh, the judge found James Saunders guilty of two counts of illegal voting. He faces anywhere from probation to three years in prison. He's going to be sentenced August 28th. Saunders cast ballots in both Ohio and Florida in the 2020 presidential election and the 2022 general election. The judge noted that voting records from both states show Saunders also illegally voted twice in the 2014 and 2016 general elections. And, you know, three of these votes were cast in person uh, that we're talking about here. But the prosecutors could not charge him for those votes in, in those two elections because the statute of limitations had already passed. But, you know, it appears Saunders was the only case of a person voting twice in Cuyahoga County in years so this whole widespread voter fraud thing is kind of a joke. But Saunders was being represented in court by the public defender's office. So the judge ordered that office to turn over the results of its investigation into Saunders' financial status to figure out whether taxpayers should pay for his representation. Because, I mean, come on, if, if the dude has houses in both Ohio and Florida and he had the cash to donate to Trump's campaign, you got to believe he can afford a defense lawyer, right? And he went straight to prison. I mean, it, it was don't pass go. They took him out of the courtroom and took him away. 
The uh, yeah, think- except they say he's not going to be sentenced for a few days here. So I, I'm not sure why they took. They did take him to jail, though. You're right. Yeah, because look, there's no. This is not an innocent mistake. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you cast two votes in an election, I don't know why you would. It's just stupid. But it, but clearly, he's he's did something bad here and is getting pounded for it. I just think it's fascinating that it's a Trump supporter who was violating the election law. That is just the ultimate irony. (laughs) Yeah, all the Trumpsters out there that are still trying to claim the election was rigged, it's like, look to your own because those people behave themselves when they cast votes. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What's the new college loan forgiveness plan that can help millions of borrowers, including Ohioans? Laura. This is the new save plan, and it was announced by Joe Biden after he couldn't get his original plan through through Congress. So this repayment plan is based on a borrower's income and family size, not their loan balance. And it's going to forgive remaining balances after you make payments for a certain number of years. So the education department says over 20 million borrowers are going to benefit from this saving on valuable education save program. I mean, you wonder how many iterations they had to come up with to get that acronym to to work for them. (laughs) Yeah. And but how how did you get this past the Supreme Court throwing out the previous program? How's it different? Well, it's working within the government. I that's my understanding. So honestly, I think this is super complicated. That's why any one of our stories on on student loans does well because everybody's like, which iteration is this? Does it affect me? Private loans are very different than federal loans. And so I couldn't tell you the the very specific machinations of this, but more than 1 million low-income borrowers are going to be eligible for this. This is like single borrowers who make around $15 an hour. Those people aren't going to have to pay anything under the program because they're going to get to focus on paying for food, rent, and other payments. Uh, borrowers who earn above $15 an hour will likely see their payments lowered for by about, about $1,000 a year compared to other repayment plans. And you won't see your balance grow with unpaid interest. As long as you're paying what you're supposed to every month, you're not going to see the total amount grow. And if you pay off for however long you're supposed to, you're going to get that loan forgiven. So it's not just like, hey, we're wiping out all the student loans that exist. You're still going to have to pay. You're going to, you're paying based on your income, but there is a, you know, an end in sight for all of these people who feel so burdened by student loans. Has Dave Yo sued to stop it yet? (laughs) No, no, I have not seen that. I, I mean, you have to imagine there's going to be pushback because there has been so much. But I also think that the Biden administration has been burned enough here that they hopefully are doing what is like only within their purview and is very locked down and, and allowed by law. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland's bartender to the rich and powerful is a former Northwestern University football player. He's got an incredible memory. He hears all the secrets. Lisa, who is he and where does he tend bar? 
His name is George Haruvis, and he currently tends bar at the Union Club on Euclid Avenue downtown. As you said, he was a former defensive lineman at uh, Northwestern University, but also at Lakewood High School, where he graduated in 1985. But this is in his DNA. His grandfather and his father owned the London Bar on Superior, and an uncle owned Brothers Lounge at one time, and his sister runs Anna in the Raw, which is a downtown juice cafe. But Haruvis, while he was home from college during the summer, he would sling drinks at the London. And he said back then it was about 75 cents to a dollar for a shot and 50 cents for a draft beer. He said he learned the art of conversation while doing this. And he's waited on a lot of celebrities through his long career at several different bars, including a stint in Las Vegas. He's waited on people like Stevie Ray Vaughan and, and, uh, and others. But his dad, Leroy, who ran the London, he served a bunch of baseball greats. Billy Martin, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, Casey Stengel, all came through the London. He said, my father was the one who had the great stories. And talk about a story. Father Leroy died on the Sleepy Hollow golf course in Brecksville one day after the Cleveland Indians lost the 1997 World Series. Um, he also worked at uh, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse uh, around the corner in the, the Stone Mad Pub. He's an old school bartender. He says he mostly makes the old style drinks, Manhattans, old fashions, and martinis, and his favorite drink is on the rocks. But here's a great story. In the 1990s, he was working at a bar in Vegas, and he met Don, Don Rickles' representative, and he got front row tickets to Don Rickles and Frank Sinatra show. And then he had a confrontation with a customer there. He said... That the, it ended with the customer saying, I'm always going to be a successful attorney and you'll always be a bartender. 30 years later, Haruvis was lamenting that he still owed $1,200 in student loans. Well, that very same attorney and a friend each chipped in $600 to help pay off his loans. And Haruvis says, you know, it's funny how life goes around and then comes back. I, I'm not a union club guy, really not a union club guy, but I end up having meetings there because people who want to talk to me are. And this story came about because I had had a couple of recent meetings there, and both of the people I was with were just talking about George and how he he knows everything, he knows their drinks, he knows everybody, he hears everything. Um, and, you know, I met him and shook his hand, but it's just, I thought, you know, if this guy is serving all of the rich and powerful of Cleveland and hearing all that stuff, we ought to do a story about him. I mean, how many bartenders are there are there like that? The Union Club, I think, has been getting more business in recent years because of the work from home movement. People have left their downtown offices and union club members have an easy place to park. And so they use it quite a bit. Just a fascinating guy. And, and Mark Bona brought him to life. It's a story worth your time on cleveland.com. And it'll be in the plain dealer eventually if it hasn't been already. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio has lost more than 312,000 acres of agricultural land since 2001. Layla, how much is left? And are any of the top counties for it even close to Greater Cleveland? <laughs> we still have more than 10 million acres of farmland in Ohio. And indeed, though, we've lost a lot, a lot of farmland. And, and there were a few reasons for that. Of course, we can blame the development of commercial, industry, and residential areas, areas but also since 2020, farming practices have changed. The pandemic placed renewed attention on, on an increasingly consolidated agricultural industry, and family farms have been swallowed up by large food corporations. And of course, we've been dealing with climate change, so farmers have given up growing wheat 
all across the country because of increasing drought conditions. Right now in Ohio, our top crop is soybeans. Demand for it is expected to increase in the coming decade too. So that's what we see growing in the top 10 counties with the most farmland, which are in descending order from 10 down. Henry, Henry County, Crawford, Hancock, Hardin, Pickaway, Seneca, Mercer, and then the top three in the state are Putnam County with about 278,000 acres of farmland spread across 3,144 farms. Then there's Wood County is number two. They have almost 306,500 acres and 3,527 farms. That's 3% of the state's total farmland in one county. And finally, the number one farming county in Ohio is, drum roll here, <laughs> Dark County, which has just over 308,000 acres and more than 3,800 farms, 3% of the state's total there too. So I don't know which of these counties comes close is closest to Cuyahoga <laughs> County. No is it Wood? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about looking at the map and trying to, you know, but then the thought of all this farmland made me dizzy. <laughs> well, it's just so foreign to Greater Cleveland. We're not surrounded by farms. There's very little, and you think about the bulk of this state being farmland. It's just that dichotomy of the cities and the rural areas. You're listening to today in Ohio. Other than abortion and marijuana, November's ballot is pretty tame, but we do have tax increases in some communities in the greater Cleveland. What are they, Laura? One thing we're all going to vote on is the Cuyahoga Community College tax. So the district wants a 0.4 mil increase along with a renewal. So you'd be paying more. They want that for operating costs for educational services. That will raise about $74 million annually for 10 years and cost $67 for each $100,000 of appraised value that you have on your home. Shaker Heights might have the biggest ask on the ballot for their schools which I wonder if that Dreamtown book helps or hurts this this ask. But they've got three things together that they want a bond issue to, to build and renovate buildings and construction. Uh, they want a tax issue to do for acquisition, construction, enlargement, renovation, and financing of general improvements. And another continuing levy would raise another $2.8 million a year and use for current operating expenses. So they're, you know, they're asking something about $240 for every $100,000 of property value that you have in Shaker. And since you're already paying some of the highest taxes in the state, I don't know if that makes you more likely or less likely to pass that. Uh, you know, we've seen in the past couple of elections a very mixed bag on on schools. And some communities pass them. Rocky River just passed theirs. But like, if you're in Parma, you're never, I feel like it's never going to get over. Fairview Park wants a bond issue to improve their Gemini Center. Their indoor pool has been drained and out of commission for years now. So they really want to fix that up. Euclid Library is asking for an additional bunch of money over 30 years, $52 for each $100,000 of appraised value. So yeah, they're spread out across the, the county. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Wednesday. We want to thank Layla for joining us because Courtney could not. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, everybody who listens. We'll be back Thursday. 